Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Leah. And this is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today's guest is Kenton Lysak from Saskatoon. Kenton is a public engagement consultant with the city of Saskatoon and was previously the senior interpreter for the Minwasan Valley Authority in Saskatoon. Hello, everyone. Hey. Hello. So I work at the city of Saskatoon now as a public engagement consultant. And it's something I never really thought I was going to be going into. But what's surprising to me is to see how similar engagement is to the elements that are education. And one thing that kind of steered me into that position was the idea of how in the world can we get more public participation in so many of these important environmental concepts and challenges that we face on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, right? So that's what I'm doing right now, and I'm trying to gain new insights into public engagement. Yeah, what made you, you're so passionate about the environment, what made you join this, the environmental sector in the first place? I came from small city, let's say like that, Yorkton, Saskatchewan, where there wasn't really a lot of opportunities to understand the environment. There wasn't a lot of environmental pr protection in that area, and I come from a strong farming background. So for me, what really inspired me from the get-go was actually just looking at ants. And that might seem very odd, but if you think of some of the greatest ecologists out there, not putting myself in line with them, but thinking of people like Gerald Durrell or E.O. Wilson, these are people who just looked at the simple things in biology and came up with some pretty amazing understandings of society, human understanding, and the way our environment works. So for me, I was always that odd kid that was in the middle of a farmer's field and fascinated with these ants and trying to stop a plow from, <laughs> from planting seed in a farmer's field, which usually ended up being my dad and we had to have some conversations that way. But the truth of the matter is, is there was a big break where I, I wasn't really interested in environmental education or the environmentalism at all. What really happened for me was actually kind of an awakening in university. When I started entering biology and in, in the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, I started to learn these names of naturalists that were creeping out um, that have been here in Saskatoon all this time and have these amazing thoughts and these amazing abilities and I started to just kind of be a tick and latch on to them and see what I could learn. The first individual was was definitely Melanie Elliott at the University of Saskatchewan's Ecology Camp for Kids. This is a lady who took numerous ecological educators under her wing in a place that there really isn't a lot of room for ecological education outside the school systems. And she took them and taught them about the basis of native prairies, of fescue grasslands, of aspen parklands. And she taught them how to get kids out in nature. And that can be such a difficult thing, especially in, in today's world, right? And Melanie started opening up doors for me. She started introducing me to people like Jan Shattuck, who runs the Living Sky Wildlife Rehabilitation Society. This lady has dedicated her entire life to protecting and rescuing uh, animal species across Saskatchewan. 
And if there's an owl that's injured, it's Jan that gets a call. And this lady is just unbelievably dedicated to helping local species out. Or there's Candace Savage, which a lot of people know by name because of the her great books that she's written. But this, this lady has a unbelievable amount of inspiration in her soul. Her essence just imbues this sense of passion, of of wilderment, of excitement about, to me, whenever I'm hanging out with Candace, it's like Bilbo Baggins right before he's about to go on his first adventure. And everyone, the hobbits are asking, what are you, what are you doing, Bilbo? And he says, I'm going on an adventure. That's what Candace and Melanie and Jan Shattuck and all these people have kind of imbued in me. And they're those voices in Saskatoon that are heard but certainly aren't heard enough because they have unbelievable interesting things to say and they kind of took me under their wing and next thing you know I started getting to know more and more of these environmental uh, individuals like Louise Jones and Rick Husiak and Andrew Whiting interpreter extraordinaire and next thing you know I, I kind of started becoming one of them in that way so for me I I, I don't my interest solely came, well, I guess not solely, it came from a little bit of a passion instilled within the farm life um, and exploring nature when I was by myself at the farm, but where also it really was accented was these amazing environmentalists in Saskatoon mm. that have inspired so many people. I know what you mean. It's, it's, there's so many folks in this sector that when you get to talk to them, it's, it's such an infectious feeling you have about their excitement. Um, and I just think there's, and it, but unfortunately, yeah, like you say, it's, it's sometimes hard to get a hold of these people or get in front of these people to have those conversations. I feel like all of us, I, I know some people might shy away from this term, but all of us are all are weird to some extent. Every good ecologist and every natural historian and environmental educator, sorry, I'm lumping you in this, Michael, but we're all a little bit weird. And I think there's a Tom Waits quote that, that is, People aren't worth knowing unless they're a little bit weird. And I just gravitate towards those people. And I haven't looked back. It's such a rewarding experience to be mentored by people like that. Kenton, what, you've talked about a lot of inspirational people and, and things that they have done. What are some of the biggest rewards of conservation efforts that you have experienced or been a part of or seen in Saskatoon or Saskatchewan? The problem with conservation biology, and this is represented within a lot of the research and academic articles, is that conservation biology is a really tough thing to see short gains. It's a really tough thing to see quick gains. And so we're talking about a really, really difficult decision that a lot of environmentalists have to make. Are you willing to go the long haul? Are you willing to dedicate yourself towards numerous causes that might stretch you thin? Um, and can be really taxing on your life, on your personal yeah. life, on your job, on everything. But what I find is if you can stick around and if the cause is that justified, if it's worth it, the results after usually five or even 10 years are unbelievable. And for me, what's been the biggest thing is just to see the influence that we have had from individuals that I've been training with, with Melanie and with Candace and all these people in creating and inspiring people to 
get outside even in an urban context because it's so we're so used to thinking that we have to travel these long distances to go to beautiful places like Last Mountain Lake or Redberry Lake to see pelicans that we got to travel to get out in nature. But what we have seen in Saskatoon with things like Nature City Festival, that week-long festival we're on, I believe the sixth or seventh year now, and and or or even the environmental programming in the city it's pushing people to not just look at those other sites, but to look in our city. Our city has an amazing amount of biodiversity and it's not just because of the South Saskatchewan river. It's the fact that all these species are migrating past us. They're calling these spaces home and they live in every nook and cranny of, of every habitat and microhabitats that we provide them in our city. The success to me, Leah has really been seen students over the last uh, 14 years that I've been an environmental educator, um, seeing them transition to now not just looking in those spaces when they're going to the lake, but looking in their backyards and seeing the importance of things like solitary bees. And we always think honeybees and they're very valuable, but we always think honeybees are the be all end all. But now students are starting to build solitary bee houses in their schools or even thinking of programs like building bat boxes or uh, native gardens within schools. Ne I never dreamed that we would see that 14 years ago, never. And I never had those opportunities. That's a huge success. And then if you think of how it translates into public policy and even like municipal policies, we're starting to see movement within city sectors, things like, uh, like paying attention to dark skies and light pollution within our city, that was never even dreamed about really when I first started. Now, those are considerations that uh, City of Saskatoon, Miwasan Valley and so, uh, Authority and Ducks Unlimited, these are, these are organizations that are considering those things on a pretty regular basis. There's now burning and grazing within the city of Saskatoon. That's amazing that you can have 300 sheep that are grazing in the city <laughs> and that there's, there's, you know, there's controlled burns, not wildfires or launching matches all over the place, but controlled burns that native prairie needs to have in order to remain resilient and uh, opposing things like invasive species. It's just a normal part of, of, of that process. I never thought that I would see those things and I view those as successes. And the thing that we can't bury our head in the sand about is we can't just think that we're going to make a difference in two years. And it's so challenging. And I know people who have gotten personally burned out and even I have at times, but it's, it's seeing the dedication that these people have continuing on that train. And next thing you know, you start to see these huge impacts and I've seen it in your kids and students, Michael, I've seen it across the city of Saskatoon. To me, that's really inspiring. And things like the city of Saskatoon's Healthy Yards Initiative, the upcoming green infrastructure strategy, holy moly, those are really exciting initiatives. Mm -hmm. So I view, those as, as, I view those as successes. And I do think, even though things, huge environmental challenges like climate change and massive amounts of biodiversity loss and habitat degradation, yeah, they're, they're happening. What I'm liking is that we're seeing a shift in mentality. 
a paradigm shift is happening and I'm excited to think of what the possibilities are going forward into the future. That's a very inspirational answer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you used one of my favorite lines. I, whenever I'm talking with educators, I'm always trying to emphasize that we often have this idea that outdoor education or environmental education, you have to go somewhere to, to do those things. And I am constantly trying to communicate that nature is around us and that we can access it. Um, wherever we live in our schoolyards in our backyards um, any time that I think of a, like I have a high school kid or a middle year kid that is getting a birthday I hand him a copy of amateur naturalist by Gerald Durrell and if you have never gotten a copy of that it's a it's a must must read because it teaches you the very concept of here's all these different ecosystems but guess what you can study and be a naturalist in your backyard. And Gerald Durrell's approach is really fundamental to the principles of something that I think is just paving the way for the future, and that's citizen science. And to me, that is an element, that is probably one of the biggest wins, Leah, is the fact that for so long, we have had such a difficult time bridging the gap between science and it's communication to the public. How in the world do we get people to actually care about the loss of native plant species, of fescue prairie, of uh, migrating birds, which there's a billion less of? Like these are really difficult concepts and obviously people feel environmental depression where it becomes such a, a strong, impossible thing to change. What can they possibly do about it? I think citizen science is the future. Now we can contribute to larger data sets. Scientists can have a better understanding and a grasp on how to figure out solutions to these environmental problems. And the best thing is, is we're teaching people at the same time. We're teaching them how to be scientists and why science is important. Uh, to me, that's, that's a dream that probably Bill Nye and David Suzuki have had all along. And what a cool world that we live in that right now we can use our phone to actually point and click a photo of any species that we see and upload it into apps like iNaturalist. They'll identify what that species is. And then a bunch of nerds, scientists like me will say, yep, that's the species. Can you imagine how important that is to a young mind mm -hmm. to say, I found this uh, I found this um, variegated damselfly. I found this. I found this meadowhawk dragonfly. Um, to think that they can identify it with the help of scientists, and then we can use the data to better understand the species. Wow! What a success! What a huge, huge improvement! Well, you managed to make that connection with ants in your farm field. Imagine how much you know. How how much more? Like you said, these students get or these young minds get that affirmation like yes this is a neat thing or i can nerd out about this and or, or weird out whatever you want to put it and i think that's such a a, a tool of inspiration for for kids to to have now and it's that yeah they get just that sense of connection you can connect with pretty high up minds in in the environmental community and science community pretty quickly um and which really can shape your direction in life i think i remember we went we were meeting you at the swale one day the northeast swale and the students knew we were meeting you there, but they they just saw this this uh, figure in 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 the water, and they thought they thought you were like a 
they thought you were like a buffalo. I hadn't obviously explained the geography quite well enough to them, but someone's like, oh, look at that beast out there. And it was, you were in this huge sun hat and you had your waders on. So you were all like, you were right in the middle. <laughs> they were like, what is that? I'm like, well, uh, that's Kenton. And they got out there and yeah, they were just so excited to, uh, you brought up a bunch of stuff. You just pulled up a net uh, in the middle of, in, in the middle of one of the wet or, uh, bodies of water there. And from that conversation where you were pointing out different species that you saw within that net and different, uh, yeah, di different uh, reasons for their, their being in the swale. That's, I know for a fact that two, two of those young minds have come back and said that one experience there has, they're now in, they're, they've gone on to university that they're, they're heading off there next year and they're pursuing a, a path in science and um, because of those kind of experiences. And so I think that's, yeah, I think like you say, I think there's, there's a whole bunch of hope found, I think, when you do get to, to work with kids uh, and youth. And I, I think a really neat thing for students, especially those who are in high school right now, is that, you know, even with the scientific community saying there's only this many, many years to make a significant change in the world, that these students at least are going to be of an age when they're done high school or in, in university or in the workforce in, in nine years when these policies have to be, you know, without a doubt being implemented by that time, at least they're going to be in a stage where they can make a big difference, which is, which is pretty substantial. So I think the, the work that so many scientists are doing right now to engage youth uh, and those younger minds is, is so key. Absolutely. You're right. And you know what the truth of the matter is, is I, I have always tried to bridge the gap between science and its communication to the public. And for me, the biggest challenge in that is just trying to provide information that's tangible. That's something that individuals can grasp mm. because often science is communicated in an extremely um, difficult way of understanding it. Right. If I talk about bees and I say, well, social hymenoptera, you know what I mean, kids? Uh, no, it's not going to work. Um, so for me, those are the challenges I face. But let's be honest, I, that's only one piece of the pie. The other piece is working with educators within Saskatoon and even in, within Saskatchewan. It's the combination of teaching at levels of science and teaching the importance of science in conjunction with things like social justice. It's just so rewarding to see that these young minds are not just on one side of the fence, but they're incorporating a multidisciplinary lens when they're in elementary school. Like I was just thinking about how I can pass Battletoads level three, and that was the best I got in elementary school. And these kids are coming up with way, way more complex reasoning that's a real huge reward but michael when your group came out the thing that you got to remember too is that secretly behind the scenes i was ha getting a huge benefit because i wasn't just teaching your kids i was collecting data about that habitat and just with kids dipping pond nets into the water and collecting uh, macroinvertebrates, we were able to develop data that tells us just how healthy that ecosystem is. We can develop pollution tolerance indexes of species uh, lists that say, if these certain species are missing, that's a sign that you probably have a problem or there's more environmental conditions that are being affected by roads going through that site, by salt being introduced or by 
whatever it may be. And so for me, that's the beauty of citizen science. We're both benefiting in this relationship. We're benefiting by passing on knowledge, teaching science, but also we're getting extremely reliable data. And that's something that was kind of viewed not to be in the past. People with scientists were really worried about the validity and reliability of that data. As long as we present it in easy terms and easy ways to collect that environmental data, it's amazing just how valuable citizen science can be. Mm. I, in, in our conversation, I've picked up that you have um, a fondness for some perhaps unconventional creatures. Um, <laughs> could you elaborate on why people should learn more about the positives behind conserving species that might generally have kind of a bad reputation in some circles or in some people's minds? I was a big fan of punk music. And when everyone around me was listening to Gwen Stefani and was listening to Justin Bieber, I was in the background with a hoodie up over my head, you know, talking about capitalism and stuff like that, which can tell you um, why um, I might be who I am today <laughs> to some extent. Now, for me, where I'm going with this is I think there's there got to be an appreciation for things that might seem a little bit odd or a little bit not normal. And one of the things that we're learning in ecology is some of the most important keystone species, species that are critical to uh, habitat survival and creating an equilibrium between the structure and function of ecosystems. Some of those species are the weirdest, ugliest, oddest <laughs> creatures there can be. And for me, one of them has to be bats. Little and big brown bats are common around the city of Saskatoon. And when I, when I talk about them with individuals, the most common answers, and I even got this today, the most common answer I get is, oh, I hate those things. They're mice with ring, wings, they carry rabies, and they're always flying around my head and they wanna eat my hair or something like that. Um, to me, it's just such a good example of these misconceptions that keep getting translated further and further down the road. And there's been so much research and psychology research, right, done on why are wolves always viewed as negative? Why is it that the gross looking creatures are always viewed as scary or spiders, snakes, whatever it is? I gravitate towards them because they are so critical for the health of our environment. In the case of bats, look at the stats. They're eating over 1,200 mosquitoes every night. The average mosquito within Saskatchewan is gonna produce about 10,000 eggs within their lifetime. This is a pretty important thing if 50% of those are females and bloodsuckers because they need that nutrition. It's a pretty important thing to have bats around. But people don't realize what would happen if these kinds of creatures disappeared. And within my lifetime, Leah, I have seen bats placed on Kosowik's endangered species list. I chased frogs at the farm, northern leopard frogs, who have just placed on as concern on Kosowik's endangered species list. Tiger salamanders, American badgers, all these species are placed on these lists. And I used to think when I was young and bought my endangered species guides from WWF 
and that we would, I would never let tigers and blue whales and giant pandas get ex or become extinct. Never would I let species do that. And now we're starting to see these odd, weird, what apparently are weird species disappearing. The risk that that can pose is huge. So for me, I've gravitated towards them because I want to be that young punk rocker back in the day who says, okay, wait a second, got it. You got fears, congratulations, but let's learn about why these species are important. Let's look at them. Let's study their interaction in their ecosystems and let's learn why if we lose them, we're in big trouble. So I have two tiger salamanders that I use for educational purposes, Sally and Mander. A good friend of mine <laughs> lets me use her two big brown bats, a Batrick and Elizabeth. And I would say there is there has never been a person that I have not been able to convince that bats and salamanders are important and that they aren't worth special attention. I've had a lot of people freaked out when I bring out bats in, in front of them at a park or at a school or whatever. But what's amazing to me is if people can just get a little bit closer and not feel in harm's way, the difference, the, the walls that break down and the ability for them to understand is so rewarding. And if I can convince my Baba who thought that bats eat your hair by flying around it, I think I can convince anyone. Hollywood's to blame so much for bats. I've <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know why they're flying around your hair, Michael? Do you know why they're flying around your hair? No. Okay, so let's, let's dive in. Let's do a quick little session. Why are bats <laughs> flying around your hair? Normally people think, okay, they must want to eat your hair. They must want to do something. I don't know what it is, but they're doing it. So here's why. We're, as human beings and mammals and animals on planet Earth, we're breathing in oxygen and we're breathing out carbon dioxide. Mosquitoes have special receptors within their body that allow them to track where prey are by their CO2 that they emit. There's a combination of body warmth as well as CO2, but it is CO2. And as we're breathing, when we're sitting out at Pike Lake or we're sitting out at our nearest lake, that CO2 is just being emitted right above our head. So we got a bunch of blood suckers right above there just waiting to attack us like some kind of halo flood-like creature. <laughs> so for us, guess what bats are doing? Bats are being the best bros out there. They are just constantly swooping over us saying, I got this one, dude. Don't worry about that. I got this one. Don't worry. I got this one. I got this one. I got this one. And next thing you know, there's 1,200 less mosquitoes flying over you and your friends when you're camping in an hour. That's fantastic. Well, we just take the time to understand that. It's so worth seeing what these species do for ecosystem services for us. It's so huge. You and I have talked before about how the how Saskatchewan's going to be one of those last places to kind of really feel the effect of, of climate change and things like that, just because, you know, we're cooling while the, so many other places in the world are warming up and we just have so much land. But that's why I think that, that connection with what you were saying earlier with scientists connecting with the public more here in, in Saskatchewan and, you know, dipping your 
net in a pond, you know, to get that kind of data is so key because we have to start seeing those kind of secret signs. Uh, we have all heard this before where there's this concept of, oh, well, it's just, it's just cyclical changes. Absolutely. My, my study, my background is in population biology and in combination with ecology. Absolutely, there's cyclical changes. The Lotka-Voltaire model of the um, links and hair cycles, where you see seven-year delays when hairs increase, all of a sudden links are seven years behind them, and you see uh, hair decrease, links are seven years behind them and decreasing. Mm. We see those trends, absolutely. What is frightening to me is I used to play this little game with my grandpa where I would ask him, have you ever seen anything like this, right? It'd be a cold day and all of a sudden it's December and it's, there's no snow on the ground. Grandpa, have you ever seen anything like this? No, I haven't seen anything like this, Kenton. Uh, now that question is not really funny anymore mm. <laughs> because yeah. the, no, the normal answer is I have never seen anything like this. Yeah. That's when it, to me, it gets a little bit scary. And that's where, especially from the reports from the UN uh, come out about biodiversity loss. Yeah, it's, it's time to really step up. But that's what's so great about this youth movement. I'm not a person who sits and wallows in this environmental depression. I certainly am a believer that change is coming and we just have to keep, the voices just keep, I have to keep on knocking above at those tenants and saying, change is coming, <laughs> whether you like it or not, let's do it together. One thing the pandemic has brought up for me is just a, you know, a reset, a chance to think about things that I want to change in my own life in a way that um, the, my family lives and the way that we operate. So we do have one question that we ask all of our guests, um, and I feel like now's the time to do that. Um, and the question is, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Just one thing? <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's, you know, let's keep it simple. To me, there's been a change that's been happening within this new generation and even within my generation. And it's usually viewed in numerous terms, right? Environmental disassociation uh, or the idea that there's not as many people that are stepping out and really realizing the value of nature. And nature deficit disorder is something that is certainly a concept that's thrown around regularly. But to me, I know that there are critics against those movements and those thoughts. For me, what I would like to see change, if I can make a change, it would be to inspire people to always, always remain curious. And that can be in general in life, but for me, it's primarily an environmental, environmentalism and the natural world. For me, curiosity is what drives so many scientists to be inspired to ask the right questions and to ask the difficult questions. If Galileo and Copernicus weren't asking about how uh, or challenging a geocentric universe, we'd still be thinking that the earth is the center and we'd all be self-centered, which humans are 100% not, obviously. <laughs> um, but, but realistically, curiosity is what allows people to look up at those stars and start asking questions about who am I? 
And what, what is morality? What is ethics? Why do I like this person more? And to me, that is so ingrained in being a scientist. And there has been numerous papers that have been published who have stated that critical thinking and really the loss of philosophy being taught within like a classroom setting can be such a hindrance, not just to understanding morality and ethics, but to understanding different disciplines like math and English and literature and science and all these concepts from a multidisciplinary lens. There are rules that govern our social system. There's rules that govern our politics and our natural world. And curiosity allows us to challenge that on a regular basis. And what we're finding in the literature is that it's not individuals that are less curious per se, but it's individuals that are not stepping outside their door as much. And whether it be because they're dedicated to a four inch screen or five inch, whatever you got, new iPhone, <laughs> um, or whether it is the fact that information is being fed to us at such rapid rates that we don't have the ability to stop and think about critically think about that information which is why things like fake news and all that stuff is becoming so popularized and and used and abused mm. curiosity allows us to critically think having a philosophical frame of mind is something that is so essential to just being i think a human on planet earth when i think of programs that I've heard of like philosophy in the community or philosophy for kids or ecology for kids or these amazing experiential programs that are being held in school systems. It's teaching kids. I think it should be standard to teach all mm. kids that. How important is it going to be to challenge and look at all these crazy issues that we're facing, social, natural, political, whatever it may be, we have to look at them through a multidisciplinary lens. And so for me, if I could change one thing about the world, it would be ensuring that everyone thinks critically, thinks from a philosophical frame of mind and maintains their curiosity. Right back to Bilbo Baggins stepping outside <laughs> that door and saying, I'm going on a venture. Maintain your curiosity and take risks. <laughs> Answers like that that make you the magician you are, Ken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll grab a pipe for next time and be Gandalf the Grey and shoot some dragon <laughs> and other things out there. I want to thank you guys. I really appreciate you hearing the diatribe of some kind of hippie environmentalist here. But I really appreciate you for reaching out to people. A lot of people need voices in, in terms of what they can do and getting inspired to get out in nature. And Sask Outdoors is so critical for doing that kind of work. So thanks a lot for having me and thanks for doing what you do. Thank you, it was wonderful. Are there any actions that you're going to take after listening to this or chatting with Kenton? I'm gonna double down on prepping to get my class outside as much as possible come this fall. Um, anytime I talk to Kenton, I realize, uh, things that I'm missing teaching um, and how I have to implement that more into what I'm doing. So every, yeah, it's just, it's refreshing because every time I see or see him or get to talk or see him talk to students, I'm just like, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's something I should be doing. Or, you know, that's a nice way to integrate something else into my teaching practices. So how about for you? I was a little similar, but more on a personal level. Um, 
my, I have a, an almost 11 year old son and he's forever asking me questions like, would you do this or would you do this? So today's was, if I had a thousand dollars, would I live in a, live in a forest near a town that has a co-op or would I live in a, the downtown of a big city? And I just tend to talk about philosophical approaches. I realized that that's maybe something that I've never really thought about philosophy and kids. Um, but when Kenton was talking about that and I was reflecting back on my conversation with my son, I was like, oh, maybe there is room in a kid's mind or I'm underestimating what he is capable of and that philosophy might be actually be something that he is interested in and, and, curi and curious about. So I'm going to make some endeavors to incorporate more philo philosophy into our family discussions. That's neat. Dinner time is about to get a whole lot more educational. Well, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would subscribe and give us a review on whatever podcasting service that you are listening to. And, uh, you know, maybe send it to a friend. If you, if you listened to this and you thought, hey, that was pretty interesting, send it to somebody else that you think would be interested in listening. And that would help us out a lot. Uh, as always, thanks for listening and uh, take care. This podcast is produced in association with Sask Outdoors. Check us out online at saskoutdoors.org.